rocks upon which we build our lives. We are most dependent on the family. The family is that most important foundation. And we are called to recognize and honor how critical every father is to that foundation. They are teachers and coaches, they're mentors and they're role models. They are examples of success and the men who constantly push us towards success. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that too many fathers are also missing. Too many fathers are MIA. Too many fathers are AWOL. Missing from too many lives and too many homes. They've abandoned their responsibilities. They're acting like boys instead of men. And the foundations of our family have suffered because of it. You and I know this is true everywhere, but nowhere is it more true than in the African-American community. Welcome back to the fourth episode of Single Dad, Why You Mad? Two single dads reflecting on our lives as single fathers, co-parenting. I'm David. I'm a single dad to my one and only son, my one and only child. I don't know why I always say my one and only son. Uh, <laughs> his name is Miles. He's three years old right now, and uh, I had my first kid at 50. And I'm Clark. I am a single dad to three daughters, ages 18, 12, and 11. I had my first kid at 25. Yeah. So, um, you know, like we always do as a reminder, we defined um, what we believe single dads are. Chris, you always do that better than me, so go ahead. So for our purposes, a single dad is a father who is living apart from the mother of his children, but actively engaging in raising and steering these children into adulthood. You're not just throwing cash at them. You are actively involved in their lives. Your phrase, which uh, I'm going to use any chance I get, and I have used it today, I do business with my kids. Facts. And uh, we have another reminder, right, Chris? Sure. Um, and the other reminder is we don't claim to be child-rearing, dating, relationship, co-parenting, baby mama, or financial expert. We are exactly the opposite. You know, we are learning while on the job, sharing our experiences, and reflecting on them. As you guys have heard me say before, we are changing the oil, reading the instruction booklet, and flying the plane at the same time. And every now and then, I leave a gasket off or a nut <laughs> loose or whatever else it is. But, uh, you know, I'm doing the best I can. Loose nuts tend to be a huge problem nowadays. So as we start off the episode, man, um, how's your week been? What have you been up to? Uh, we chatted, oh, we text back and forth a little bit. Um, this has been a challenging week for me. And if you check my Instagram, it has been a rewarding week. The challenges for me, you know, I'm in the middle of custody court. You know, you're going to hear a lot about it when I tell you why I'm mad. It didn't go bad for me but it did not go as I would have liked it to go. That's challenging, but you know, I'm gonna work through it. I'm definitely gonna work through it. How about yourself? Well, I was gonna say, what was the rewarding part? The rewarding part, yeah, thanks for asking. So my kid loves training. He's got a thing for Thomas to train. If you check Instagram, I posted something. Um, so he's forever watching one of these kids play with toys on YouTube. He loves it, right? He can watch that thing for an hour straight and I usually let him watch it for an hour straight you know, every now and then before he goes to bed. So there's this kid, he takes out toys, he's playing with different types of toys. And one of the toys my kids loves most is Thomas the Train. We cannot have too many Thomas or the red one, I don't know its name, or the green one, I think his name is Percy, 
and there's a yellow one. I don't know the one of that that, that one's name either. But I got them all. Damn. <laughs> you got them all. Oh. Yeah, I can't so, remember. So, so one point, this kid on on YouTube was playing with a Thomas to train, which is a larger size Thomas to train with the remote control. And about three months ago, my kid says to me, daddy, 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 Thomas to train with the remote. I want it. I want it. I want it. Mm. So wanting to be a good dad, wanting to be a better than good dad, you know, I started searching for it. I couldn't find it anywhere on Amazon or on Target. We went to Target. Duh. I went to this toy store in lower Manhattan. I couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. Um, so finally, I decided that I would go to this place called the Red Caboose. We had been there a year oh, ago. Yeah. That's, that place is famous, dude. Dude, if you haven't been there, you need to get there. So uh, two weeks ago, we went to the Red Caboose. And we got there around 7.40, 7.50. The place was closed, right? Oh. Locks on the door. Two big padlocks on the door. Now, the Red Caboose is sandwiched between a bar and a Chipotle or something like that or a FedEx hall. And it's not a storefront as much as there is a sign outside that says red caboose this way. And when you walk into this narrow hallway, there's no space left on un you. Right. There is a pipe hanging from the ceiling. He's got one of those Japanese World War II kamikaze pilot model planes hanging from it. So there's just stuff everywhere, right? He's got planes, he's got trains, he's got GI Joes, he's got cars, he's got matchbox, he's got Lionel, He's got everything open. We get there, the door is locked. And I said, oh, Miles, the door is locked. We got to come back later. We'll come back later. Miles says, it's locked? I said, yeah. He says, points to the other door, which is the back door or the emergency exit for the burger bar place. I want to go in there. I said, that's not the train place, Miles. We can't go in there. And he <laughs> said, no. He says, well, uh, it's locked. Get the key. I said, I don't have the key, Miles. <laughs> He says, I said, the man has the key. That's not daddy. So that's the man's score. He says, we'll go get the man. I said, I don't know where the man is. Right. So start to walk back out. He starts whining a little bit. And he says, uh, the points to the elevator. I want to go in the elevator. The elevator doesn't take you down there. So we leave. He's crying. But he gets over it eventually. And without even telling him, I brought him back last week, Wednesday or Thursday. I don't remember exactly which day. We get outside. He sees the sign. He starts to get excited. We walk inside. He sees all the trains. He's going, oh, wow. in, in, in this sort of plate glass play case. Oh, wow. The stairs to go down, because the place is in the basement below the FedEx thing, is steep. They're like attic stairs, right? You're going down the stairs or basement stairs. And he says, oh, wow. Because, th again, there's no shelf left unused, right? right. And we're going down and say, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I love it. I love it so much. And we'll get down in there. I asked the guy for the thing. He pulls it up right away. He had it there. I asked Miles to pick out which one he wanted. He picked out the one he wanted. I spent $300 there. Wow. So, no big deal, but I spent $300 in that joint. And we walk out of there, and we're holding hands, walking back to the train while I'm carrying this Thomas the train. And my little boy is skipping. <laughs> you remember how he used to skip? You know, you just happy. Parents say he's happy. He's skipping. And we get home and I put it together. And then at some point he goes to bed and he takes three of the trains with him and he lines them up at the foot of the bed. And then he falls asleep. And for the rest of the night, I'm not watching TV. I'm not doing anything. Besides walking back and forth in the dark, looking at the trains, looking at my kids sleep looking at these things sitting at the foot of the bed and saying, I did this shit.
I did that, yo. Well, you know, it's an amazing thing. Like those moments, right? Those moments where you have like delivered, dude, or you've connected with your kid, dude, in a way where you're just like, wow, I did it. And all the frustration and all the headbagging and all the sacrifices, this just made it worthwhile. This is why I do this. If I had made a list of all the things I wanted out of life, the feeling of having completed that minute task would not have been on it and I would have shortchanged myself. Because you don't, you don't think about it. You're just like, oh, it's more money to be spent. Oh, I got to go out of my way to get this thing. But it's important to your kid. I did that shit. And then the reaction, you're saying the reaction from your kid makes it all worthwhile. It's funny because people often say like, oh, yo, being a parent is a thankless job. And there's a lot of times where it is, you know, but the, the, like, the moments where you can see the appreciation on your kid's face, even if they don't say it, makes it worthwhile. How about yourself? Well, how did you make out this week? Well, actually, before we go to that, I want to say something about your Instagram, right? Because, <laughs> because you posted that, that video of you and your son with Thomas the Train. And like after you guys went out and got that, yo, can I tell you how many DMs I got regarding that? Like, yo, your boy, though. Like, wow. Like, he's an amazing dad. Oh, my God. Yo, he's single, right? He, he's single, right? So the feelers are being thrown out because you feel like you did the damn thing this week. The audience realized you did the damn thing this week, man. You you, you got some bonus points out there. Thank you. Thank you got you. some bonus points. Um, as for me, for this week, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of work stuff. You know, just running around like a madman, as always. My family, so my siblings, my mom, and all of my mom's grandkids were supposed to be going away in about another week or two. And so it's just been prepping for that trip. And initially, we were supposed to be going on a cruise to Cuba. So I'm standing in the post office, putting out money for expedited passports for my girls. And I think like the next day, Trump was like, yeah, nah, y'all can't go to Cuba no more. So it's been a complete audible, the cruise company switching around, changing the itinerary, which is fine. I'm still getting out of the country. I'm still going on vacation. But because of the way my mind works, I'm realizing that that countdown to this trip is doing nothing but causing me additional stress. <laughs> so I'm like trying to figure out all the stuff I got to get done for work, all the things I got to put away and, and get packed up for my daughters. And, you know, shout out and kudos to my ex-wife because she stepped in and she's like, you know, she's a lot better about packing and organizing than I am. So she's like, okay, just make sure things are washed and I'll help pack bags or whatever. But it's just another thing for me to worry about. And I'm sure once I get on the boat with the kids and I'm around my family because, you know, I love them. I enjoy spending time with them. I'm going to decompress and it's going to be amazing. But the countdown to that has been driving me nuts. So that's pretty much been my week. <laughs> just try, trying to get to that point or that goal post. So we got a subject this week, which is uh, tender for me. Yeah, I, it, 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 it's a real one. And it might be a little heavy for some people, but it's something that needs to be talked about. It's the idea of the absentee father in the black community. Is it a reality or is it a myth? So you shared with me something that I'm getting ready to share with uh, our audience. And um, why don't we take a listen to this first before we move forward? Sure. I'm on the record last night. And I tweeted this, and, you know, a lot of people um, were taken aback a little bit by it. Uh, I wish I could tell you I gave a damn, but I don't. Um, when I saw uh, R.J. Barrett crying in his father's arms while his father was talking to ESPN, I, I, I wrote last night, and I put it on all my social media pages, this moment epitomized what I saw a lot tonight. Black fathers having played significant roles in their child's lives, obliterating the stigma about us that has been disseminated for decades. Just to be proud. Very proud. How do you say? 
beautiful night. Some people took offense to that. I want to be very, very clear. Y'all can kiss off. I do understand that various communities out there all have our troubles. And first and foremost, before we're black, white, Hispanic, um, or Latino, whatever word is most you deem most appropriate, Asian American, Native American, Jewish, whatever the case may be, we're all human beings first. And I totally get that. And I certainly take, I certainly understand the point that no single community is, is, is perfect and devoid of troubles and trials and tribulations. But when it comes to the issues of fatherhood, do not tell me that African-American males have not taken a major hit because of how we are viewed and how we are talked about. And when I saw R.J. Barrett, when I saw John Moran and others by their father's side with their parents talking about the hard work that they put in, the sacrifices that were made, the things that were done to ensure that a child's dream could ultimately be fulfilled through the proper channels, hard work, dedication, commitment, no shortcuts. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Barrett and John Moran in particular. You know, in Barrett's case, break down in tears and John Moran clearly holding them back, giving props to their fathers. So I'm going to stop it there, right? Right. Um, so there's a couple of things that I'd like to talk about, and there's a couple of experiences that I've had, and I've talked a little bit about my experience uh, growing up. But, you know, before we even do that, how much time do you spend with your kids? And outside, and I'm, and I'm talking about outside of whatever agreement you have formally in the courts. And then, you know, what has been your experience growing up fatherless households, um, I know you didn't grow up in a fatherless household, but, you know, what has been your experience about, like, maybe your friends or whatever? Sure. So I, I guess starting with my, my experience in parenting, on the formal side, you know, our, our parenting agreement is that I have my kids at least four nights a week. The reality is that varies a lot. So my ex-wife can have stuff going on for work. She can just need an additional break. And we have the flex like that where she can reach out to me or I can reach out to her and say, you know, like I have work stuff going on. We'll always pick each other slack up. So that said, it's re I'm really hard pressed that even on days where I don't have my kids, I don't see my kids, right? Especially during the school year. So like my youngest kid, her bus stops on the corner of my street. So I'm the one who puts her on the bus every day. Like we were talking about that uh, amongst the, you know, me and the kids the other day and just talking about the amount of time I spend with them. And I was just saying like, yeah, like I, you know, my youngest kid, like I spent a lot of time with her physically because I put her on the bus every day. Or even when my ex-wife picks them up, they get picked up at my house. So everybody regroups, they hang out at my place. So generally I get on the days that are not mine, I get to hang out with them. You know, and plus I do all the geeky stuff that they're into. So like all three of my daughters are artists. So they like to draw and they'll be like, dad, we're just going to sit on your bed and draw. So we'll all hang out and they force me to draw. And I suck at it now because I'm so out of practice, but they're really great artists or they're into comic book conventions and anime and cosplay. So like I geek out on that kind of stuff. So we'll do those things together. Yeah, I, I, I'm hard pressed to say, you know, I spend this many hours a week with my kids. I just spend a lot of time with them. But I think a large part of it is because I enjoy just being in their space. And I think for the most part, they enjoy being around me until, you know, they just don't. And then they go to their own rooms or whatever. In terms of like how I was raised, I grew up in a household with my dad. You know, my dad worked a lot but he was also very active with us, you know? So he'd take us to the Botanic Gardens or he'd take us to the museum or he'd take us to the park. Or, you know, as you were talking about the Red Caboose, like it struck my mind, like, damn, the I remember going to the Red Caboose as a kid with my dad. And I was probably like, you know, it was probably like during the eighties. It's the last time I walked in there. 
but exactly how you described it is exactly how I remember it. Like that was my personal experience. My dad was very hands-on and he spent a lot of time talking to us and, you know, just sharing his life experiences and sharing his perspective. Um, and, 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 and this was, you know, in, in what year? Like this was in the seventies, right? Late seventies, eighties. Like I was in high school during the nineties, like during like 90 to 94, I was in high school. So, and, and what about your friends in, in the neighborhood where you grew up? So that, that was a toss-up. You know, if, if I'm being candid and I'm being honest, that's, it was a toss-up. Because I, I had friends who had fathers and had active fathers. You know, but if I'm like, if, as my mind flashes to some of my friends, like I have buddies whose fathers were active. Then I have buddies who had no interaction with their father. And then I also have friends who like, fathers passed away. So it was a mixed bag. It was, it was absolutely a mixed bag. So yeah, I, I would say it, if, I, if I'm being fair and honest, there, there were a lot of dads missing, but I think it was also a lot of kids in that neighborhood. So if I think about myself and, 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 and you've, you've heard me say this before, right? Um, <clears throat> well, okay, starting with me. So, yeah, I have my kid an equal amount of time with his mom through the month. You know, we split it according to the court schedule. But above and beyond the court schedule, there are many times when my kid is scheduled to be with his mom. If because the majority of her days are all over the weekends, you know, Friday nights, Saturdays, and Sundays, there is many a Saturday or Sunday if my family is having a barbecue or whatever else it is that I go get my kid and take my kid, you know, for a couple of hours, you know, or half the day or whatever else it is. Or if I'm going to see my dad out in Far Rockway, I'll take my kid with me. Or if I just have something planned, like, right. you know, this coming Friday, we're going to the Thomas to Train, you know, um, exhibit where you actually get on, you know, a Thomas to Train locomotive and ride it down the track out in Pennsylvania. It's the, the borderline of, you know, Pennsylvania and Delaware at the Gap, where, yeah. you know, it's this uh, day, a day on Thomas to Train. So we're going to do that. So there's, there's, there's plenty of times that I do that. There's plenty of times that I am with my kid above and beyond. But, you know, I've talked about this before. I grew up in a neighborhood in the 1960s, 1970s, um, in the deep South Bronx, right? So when you talk about the South Bronx, a lot of people are talking about this area, 149th Street and the Grand Concourse, and that, or, or 149th Street, sorry, and 3rd Avenue. You know, they're calling that area the South Bronx, right? Um, and yeah, it is, you know, South Bronx. But if you go a little bit west, sorry, a little bit east, not even a little bit, a lot east, I grew up in the Soundview section of the South Bronx. Um, so that's just deep, meaning um, you need to take a bus to get to the train in order to go anywhere. And, you know, back there in the 60s and the 70s, the train was the lifeblood, you know, of getting around through the city. If you didn't, you needed, so it was a deep two-fare zone, they call right. it, right? And it's not like you got on the bus and you were at the train in five minutes. No, you got on the bus and you were on the bus for 15, 20 minutes before you got to the train. And you had to factor all of that in. So if you had a job in midtown Manhattan, you know, you need, a, you probably left your house an hour and a half before you needed to get there in order to be there on time. And I grew up in a housing project, um, and we were surrounded on all sides by housing projects. But That's hundreds I, or thousands of families. Hundreds or thousands of families. Right. Forget hundreds, thousands of families, right? And every family that I knew in the 60s and the 70s, across the street, any which way direction, was always two parent households. You know, I've said this before. 
I didn't know anything about single parent households until I went to middle school and met a good friend of mine who's still a friend of mine today, and I was in his wedding. But you know, outside of that, I did not know that there that 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 single parent households existed. We hear all the time about you know the problem with you know the black family is that the black fathers are missing, right? Right. So I did some, you know, investigation on this, right? And 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 one of the things that kept popping up is a report um, called "The Negro Family: The Case for National Action," um, which was published um, in 1965 and written by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, right? Anybody who's old enough knows who Daniel Patrick Moynihan is, right? But um, there is a synopsis, right? Um, the Moynihan Report. The most significant debate regarding the history of African-American families was sparked not by a historian, but by sociologist and policymaker, subsequently Senator from New York, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who uh, lived from 1927 to 2002. In 1965, as an employee of the Office of Policy Planning in the Labor Department during the Johnson administration, Moynihan released a report called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. Drawing on the work of sociologist E. Franklin Frazier, Moynihan traced problems he said African-Americans encountered in 1965 back to slavery. Although he acknowledged a racist virus in the American bloodstream and noted three centuries of unimaginable treatment, Moynihan blamed what he saw as a disintegration of poor urban black families squarely on slavery. He said slavery had developed a fatherless, how do you say the word? Matriarch, matriarchal? Matriarchal within Black families. Men, he claimed, did not learn roles of providing and protecting, and this shortcoming passed down through generations. Moynihan discussed racism and chronic unemployment and its effect across African Americans, but it was his description of, uh, say it again? Matriarchal? Matriarchal family and its tangled of pathology that drew attention both from those who disagreed with him and those who supported his findings. Now, in response to the Moynihan Report, historian Herbert Guckman undertook an extensive study of African-American families. His book titled, The Black Family in Slavery and Freedom, 1750 to 1925, was published in 1976. Okay, he lived from 1750 to 1925. Is that what it is? I have no idea what 1750 to 1925 means. But his book was published in 1976. He reasoned that if Moynihan was right, then there should have been a prevalence of women-headed households during slavery and in the years immediately following emancipation. Instead, Gutman found that at the end of the Civil War in Virginia, for example, most families of former slaves had two parents and most older couples had lived together for a long time. He attributed these findings to resiliency among African-Americans who created new families after owners sold their original families apart. Moynihan and Frazier, Gutman concluded, had underestimated the adaptive capacity of the enslaved and those born to them and their children. You know, it, it's interesting, right? Because you, you, you hear, or like for me, I, I, you know, I tend to read and, and you know, dive into a lot of this stuff just because that's the way my gears turn. But you often hear the, the, the parable or the paradigm of imprisonment, matriarchal societies as a result of slavery, and, you know, the prevalence of this quote-unquote welfare state forcing women to devalue their men. 
essentially you get a paycheck for not having a man in your house. Tell me what you mean by that, because I think I know where you're going with this. Right. So the idea of creating a system in which a single mother is more likely to get assistance versus a struggling family. You mean public assistance? Public assistance, yes. Keep going, because I'm on the same track you are. Keep right. Going. So the idea that, oh, the reason you don't have black fathers around, according to, to, to the, the storyline, is mothers are going, I don't need a man to help me be financially secure. I don't have to put up with his, you know, his behaviors. So I'm, a, I'm just going to do it on my own and get a check. Now, the interesting thing is if you address the, 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 the stigma and the storyline, the percentage of black people on welfare or public assistance, I, I mean, just by sheer numbers, we're the minority in the country, we're the minority of people on public assistance. That is correct. That so, is a fact, though. That is a fact. That's not just something you and I are saying. Right. That is a historical that's fact. fact. So yeah. it becomes, you know, the anecdotal, the, you know, the anecdotal, you know, direction of the story is inaccurate. And when I think about single father, single parent households led by mothers, one of the things that I learned very quickly, especially, you know, being a native New Yorker and, you know, growing up in the city and being surrounded by so many families and some of those families without fathers, it wasn't just black households. You know, like I had Latino friends whose dads weren't around. You know, I had Asian friends whose dads weren't around, you know, and, and then going out into the world as a single guy and dating, you know, a lot of dudes, you know, at the tail end of their breakup decide to not business with their kids anymore because, you know, the mother has decided to put an end to the relationship. A lot of those dudes come in a lot of colors. They, yeah. come, in, they, come, in a, yeah. they come in a wide range of colors. So, you know, like I, I had one friend who's, you know, whose husband picked up and moved back to Russia. He was like, I, you, know, you don't want to be married? I'm done. You take care of these kids. You know, or another friend, you know, her, she divorced her husband and he picked up and he moved to the Carolinas. And they were a white family. So, so jumping back for a second to the thing you were saying about public assistance, right? Right. You know, so this is not a fact. This is just a theory that I have, though, right? Right. How much of that is related to the fact that, okay, we can do better as a family if we report that we are not together so that you can get public assistance, but we are together and I still have a side hustle off the books or whatever else it is where I bring money in and then also contribute to the family and am around my kids and am spending time with my kids. I know a whole gang of cats that are doing that. Um, off the books, we're together, but on the books, we're not. And you know, it's easier to survive that way because if on the books we're together, I can't, I'm, as a black man, I'm already having a tough time. And I'm not saying me, I'm just saying, you know, people that I know. Yeah. I'm already having a hard time finding a job. And whatever job I find, um, you know, I'm not going to make, you know, the same amount of money it's going to be if I was on the book. Sorry. So whatever money, whatever income we have, our total income will decrease if I'm on the books and we're at together because you're not going to be able to get public assistance. You're not, you're not going to get the support. Exactly. But if I'm off the books and we're not together, I still got to hustle. I'm still bringing an income. And then as the mom who's staying home and take care of the kids, you have an income. And you're so we do better off the books together than we do better than we can do on the books together. You know, and, and 
as much as I say, you know, I don't want to see anybody game in the system, it exists. And I've, I've absolutely seen it. I've, I've absolutely seen it. But I'd say, once again, the interesting thing about that is that's not just a black hustle. That's a, that's a universal hustle of, of people who are on the system. You know, I mean, not to say everyone who, who's on the system is running a game, but I've seen it a lot of times. Um, so it's interesting, man. It's, a, it, it's, it's the idea that, like, even if you are, even if you do have, you know, a, a lot of black dads in the household raising their kids and actively parenting, the narrative still exists. You know, and it's interesting because I also would love to see the numbers. I like I haven't pulled them. I haven't pulled the you know the data to say okay, you know this percentage of black households don't have fathers in them. I'm glad you asked, right? Right. I did pull the numbers. <laughs> I knew you would. So uh, the CDC, there's a CDC report, right? Right. Uh, called Births to Unmarried Women is this is dated December 2015, right? So re- relatively recent data, uh, and it dates back. Um, to 1960, but in 1960, and then again in 1965, they're only showing numbers for um, uh, white families. They don't get to showing numbers um, for white, white, non-Hispanic, black, black, non-Hispanic, Hispanic, Asian or Pacific Islander, American Indian or Alaskan Native until 1980 when they started showing those numbers. You know, I'm not surprised at that. Uh, right. That was the Reagan era, right? <laughs> Birth to unmarried women, 11.2 for white, 9.5 for white non-Hispanic, 56.1 for black, 57.2 for black non-Hispanic, 23.6 for Hispanic, 7.3 for Asian or Pacific Islander, and American Indian or Alaskan Native, 39.2. So that's birth to unmarried mothers. Yes. So, so the interesting thing about that stat and the way that it, it's recorded, right? Firstly, that's birth to an unmarried mother. That doesn't mean that she's not coupled. It means she's not legally married. Correct. Secondly, it doesn't tell you what happens after that kid is born. Correct. So I think, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just saying that, like, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, I say this a lot, especially in my line of business. You know, men lie, women lie, numbers don't, to quote Jay-Z. And one of the things that you'll find with numbers is even though numbers don't lie, it's dependent on what you ask them. That is correct, too. You can, f- you can find a stat to support almost anything if you ask the question in a way that suits your purpose. If you ask the right question, you'll get the answer you're looking for. Correct. Facts. Facts. So, like, as, as you're going through these numbers, I'm going, okay, yeah. So a lot, of these, a lot of these minority mothers, particularly Black and Latino mothers, more so Black mothers, were not married at the time that their kids were born. Let's go to 2014, right? Um, so that was 1980 numbers, I gave you. Now I'm giving you 2014. Total births, um, forget total births. So down the same line, 35.7 for white, 29.2 for white non-Hispanic, 70.4 for black, 70.9 for black non-Hispanic, Hispanic, 52.9. Am I in the right now? Yep. Um, Asian or Pacific Islander, 16.4. American Indian or Alaskan Native, 65.7 in 2014. 65.7 in 2014 versus what in 1980? And we're talking American Indian or Alaskan Native? Yeah. Uh, in 1980, they were 39.2. Right. So, and, and it's also an interesting thing, you know, and this is just my extrapolation of the data, but we've grown into a more liberal and open society. Yes. Right? So think about how this compares 
to Icelandic countries like, you know, Norway and Sweden and so forth, which are incredibly liberal. Most mothers, I believe, I, I, I want to say that, you know, the data is, is somewhere in the 60s or 70 percent of unwed mothers. And then, you know, tracking the, the situation afterwards, they are uncoupled relatively shortly after b- babies being born. Not saying that marriage doesn't exist, but in countries where there are there is no stigma or the stigma has been relaxed, you are less likely to find women staying in relationships that are less gratifying to them in order to keep the idea of uh, of, of a, a happy household to keep the you know, in order they're no they're no longer putting up the facade is what I'm saying. And and I think that applies also, you know, that culture shift applies also to women who decide to have children or right. to people who decide to have children. Let me not say women who decide to have children because let me speak for myself, right? right? So me not being married at the age of 50, I said to myself, you know, I'd like to have a kid and I don't necessarily need to be married to have one because I have all intents on being involved in my child's life, you know, um, as much as I possibly can, right? Um, and there's a whole bunch of people making that decision now, men and women, you know? Right. So, you know, and then especially as, as, as the economy, excuse me, or opportunities or times get better for people, people are more comfortable having a child, um, without being married, right? They're more comfortable, you know, um, I can afford this on my own. Um, you know, I mean, these, you know, um, uh, what do you call these facilities where you go and you leave some sperm and uh, somebody goes in and gets, you know, and has a baby. Or, yeah. These fertility banks don't exist for no reason whatsoever. You know, there's a whole gang of people going over there, you know, um, and decided to have babies on their own. Um, but this report also speaks uh, to the age bracket um, of people who are um, having children or sorry, women who are having births, um, not being married. So under 15 years age, um, 99.4 are unmarried. That, that of course, 19, 88, 0.6. 20 to 24, 65.7. 25 to 29, 36.7. 30 to 34, 22.5. 35 to 39, 21.6. And 40 years and over, 24.3. Somebody gets to the age of, uh, you know, um, uh, 29, you know, there's no real change in whether or not, um, you know, they, they, they are having a, a child. Um, it, there's no decline, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, the number is steady. Um, and, you know, from where I sit, that's just a whole bunch of people who, you know, you know, this culture shift. I don't need to be married in order to have a child. I, 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 sorry, I'm, I, from where I sit, that culture shift is just period today. I don't need to be married to have a child. No, I, I, think, I think, you know, as you look at the way the world has changed, right? You have less of the social stigma. You have more financial freedom and flexibility, right? Because you think about it for in the past, if you look back, you know, in, in, in previous years, going back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, parts of the 60s. Like, it was near impossible for a single woman to survive without a man to support her. Like, you know, women couldn't own property or apply for a credit card or a passport without a male co-signer, you know, until relatively recent human history. So you were more likely to stay in a situation or find yourself a situation in order to survive. 
get yourself into a situation in order to survive. Right, right. You know, with, and granted, there's still a wage gap, there is still wage inequality, both racially and sexually, but there's a lot more flexibility than there has been historically. And flexibility gives people options. So, so um, I found those statistics, right? Um, and, and, and I'm moving backwards now, I'm working backwards now, because there was an article in the New York Times um, posted in June of 2015 by a Charles M. Blow that said, Black dads are doing best of all. So real quick um, excerpt. One of the most persistent statistical bludgeonings of people who want to blame Black people for any injustice or inequality, uh, inequity they encounter is this. According to the data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which was you know, um, what I just uh, read, um, in 2013, in uh, 72% of births to non-Hispanic Black women, the mothers were unmarried. And it has always seemed to me that embedded in the if only Black men would marry the women they have babies with rhetoric was more an insidious suggestion that there is something fundamental and intrinsic about Black men that is flawed, that Black fathers are pathologically prone to desertion of their offspring and therefore largely, largely responsible for Black community dysfunction. There is an astounding amount of mythology loaded into this stereotype, one that echoes a history of efforts to rob Black masculinity of honor and fidelity. Oh, man. One of the things that they go to point out is that there are about 2.5 million Black fathers living with their children and about 1.7 million living apart from them, right? Would you um, repeat that one more time? What was the number? There are about 2.5 million Black fathers living with their children and about 1.7 million are living apart from them. And that was in 2015, right? But, but apart from them doesn't mean inactive. Exactly. And that points you to this National Health Statistics Report, um, which was published in December of 2017. Sorry, in December 17th of 2013, which is called Father's Involvement with Their Children, United States, 2006 to 2010. The objective of this report measures father's involvement with their children. Father involvement is measured by how often a man participate in a set of activities in the last four weeks um, with children who are living with him and children who are living apart from him. Increased involvement of fathers in their children's lives has been associated with a range of positive outcomes for the children. So that's why they conducted this report, right? So I'm just gonna give you three of them real quick. How often fathers fed or ate meals with their children? Specifically, Hispanic fathers were less likely to eat meals with their children every day. 64% were less likely. Then were non-Hispanic white, 74% were less likely. Or non-Hispanic black, 78% were less likely, right? How often fathers bathed, diapered, or dressed with their children? So hold on, let me go back and be clear about what this statistic is saying. How often fathers fed or ate with their children? Specifically, Hispanic fathers were less likely to eat meals with their children. That means only 64% of them would eat meals with their children. Right. White, it was 74% would eat meals with their children. But with Black, 78% would eat meals with their children. How often fathers bathed, diapered, or dressed their children? There was a significant difference by Hispanic origin and race among fathers. Um, black fathers, 70% were most likely to have bathed, dressed, diapered, or helped their children use the toilet every day compared with white, 60, and Hispanic, 45. How often fathers played with their children? A higher percentage of Hispanic fathers, um, aged 15 to 44, 52% had not played with their um, non-co-residential children in the last four weeks, compared with white, 30%, and black, 25%. 
So it's saying that black fathers played with their children evenly or more. That right. black fathers bathed, diapered, or dressed their children more. That black fathers ate meals with their children more than all of these others. You know, like, it's, 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 it's interesting, right? It's interesting. Once again, going into how you carve up the data, right? Because if you just look at the data and go, oh, yeah, unwed mothers, you know, fathers, you know, not living in the household, Ah, uh, they're, they're not taking care of their kids. They're not involved. The in natural it. assumption is that you're not be, you're not there for your kid. Yes. Right. And so, like, it, it was interesting because as, as we're talking and we're going through this, you know, I was just thinking about, like, how the data gets carved up. So Yale University did a, a, a study back in 2017 on out-of-wedlock births across the world, just globally. And they're on the rise. But that goes back to what we were saying about the idea of women having more options, not having to be stuck in marriages that they didn't want to be in, you know, and having the flexibility to, you know, to live in a separate space, even if they are co-parenting. And what's really funny is if you look at the data, you know, and I'll send it to you all, all you know, offline later, but there are a ton of countries who are having, where the number of out of wedlock births far outstrip what we see in the United States. And according to, you know, the, you know, the study, if you're just looking at, at, you know, black participants or black nations, African nations tend to be incredibly low in terms of out of wedlock births, because once again, the social stigma. So once again, like, you know, it, if you're asking a question in a very specific way, you're going to get very specific answers. I, I think that's the takeaway here. So um, the other part from where I sit, and again, I'm not a sociologist, so I can't speak to the exact numbers, right? But how much of this could be associated with the fact that just first of all, women outnumber men, right? We are outnumbered, number one. Well, it depends on where you are. Depends on where you are. Because like globally, it's almost it's pretty close to even global. But depending on where you are and like geographically, like New York, I want to say I I believe women outpace men. You know, the Northeast as a whole, there are far more women than there are men. Um, so once again, depending on where you are, not to take away from your argument or or or, or where you were headed, but it, that that was just me thinking about it. Okay, so I was under the impression, and I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. that you know, historically, um, women outnumber men, right? Yeah. Just nationwide, worldwide, women outnumber men, right? If you add in, you know, um, the difficulty of, and when I say difficulty, I'm talking about fate of being a black man in America, early deaths, jail, and a bunch of other stuff. Right. Further outnumbering women to men. And then you add into that, and this is not a good thing, but, you know, I'm okay with saying it, there are a bunch of men who are having children with multiple women, something we talked about in the first episode. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could see there being more unwed mothers than, you know, or proportionately unwed mothers than, so, I, I, okay. So let me not even say that because I, I'm, I'm not a sociologist. I don't have the numbers. All I'm saying is, you know, it makes sense to me knowing what I know that there would be more women that are not married that are having children, right? Um, outside of marriage, right? And it does not mean that the fathers are not spending time with these children, but it's that stereotype. It's just that stereotype that just bothers the heck out of me, that it's just naturally assumed that the reason that the black community has the problems that it has 
is because the black fathers are not around. And my father was around, my brother is around for his kids, my uncle was around for his kids, every neighborhood I knew growing up was around for their kids. Um, I've got a bunch of friends who have kids now who are involved in their kids' life, whether they are or are not with the parents, I mean, sorry, with the co-parents, and, and that stereotype, it just bothers the shit out. You know, it, it, it is a bothering statistic, right? Or, or bothering stereotype, not statistic. But I also, like, in my mind, I think about, okay, as deplorable as some stereotypes are, they started somewhere, right? And going back to, the, like, you know, what I've said about data, it's like, okay, you know, you collect data, and you collect data to support the narrative that you're creating. Or you ask it in a way that creates the that supports the narrative that you're creating. So, oh yeah, all, all these black all these black families, they're having all these babies out of wedlock, but you have a lot of dudes who are taking care of their kids. Or maybe even cohabitating with the mother, if they're not, even if they're not married. And once again, it's not just a black, a black situation. You know, or you know, to your point earlier, or what we covered in the previous episodes, yeah, you have some deadbeat dads who have kids with a bunch of women and don't take care of them. Then you have some really good dads who may have a couple of baby mamas, but actively are involved in their kids and business with their kids. And it's not just a black thing. You know, philandering is not, you know, limited to a specific race. You know, you think about it, you know, there, there's 16 million people on this planet walking around with Genghis Khan's DNA right now. <laughs> Son got it in. And you try to tell me he took care of all those kids that were part of the Mongol horde or those people he raided? Probably not. You know, and we won't talk about like how the DNA was spread. But the, the fact being that I don't think it's a thing. I don't think deadbeat dads are limited to the black community. I think it's something that gets thrown on the black community. And I, and I think that's the reason we're having this conversation in very much the same way that welfare gets thrown on the black community when we're not even making that much use of it or as much use of it, you know, but it's something that gets associated with being black. So I guess at the end of the day, right, you know, I don't have an answer for this. You don't have an answer. I don't know. You might have an answer for this, right? But I just wanted to air this and people might be listening to this saying, okay, guys, well, where were you going with it? I had no place to go with it except the fact that I just wanted to speak to it, right? Right. Um, speak to the fact that, um, you know, this is not how I know it. You know, I've heard it this way. I have often heard people talk about it this way. So let me circle back. Let me, let me, let me circle back and tell you two stories real quick. Right? So I was married at 25 and divorced at 30, right? And I married a woman who um, did not grow up with her dad, but instead grew up with a stepdad, right? right? And I remember we were in therapy, you know, because we were having a whole gang of troubles you know, um, and we were trying to work through them. Or, you know, maybe it was just a popular thing to do, or it was a cool thing to do to go to therapy, right? Um, and I remember we're sitting with the therapist who was a white woman at the time, right? And uh, my ex-wife started talking about, you know, her experiences with her father not being around, even though the stepdad was around, but the stepdad was a horrible person. But she started talking about, and I started talking about my experience growing up, like I've always did, of being in a two-parent household, and not knowing anything about single families until I went to middle school. And so, and the therapist cut me off and said, yeah, okay, David, that's fine. But why don't we hear what your wife has to say? Why is that? What? Okay, I, so I've already answered the question, why is that? But they don't want to talk about it. It's like we'd rather talk about what we perceive as the truth and what we want to perceive as the truth versus 
what possibly the truth could be or what a portion of the truth could be, right? So then I'm going to fast forward. When my son's mother and I, when she was um, pregnant or, or, or just after she gave birth and we knew that this was not going to end well, meaning we were not going to live happily ever after in the same household, go and buy a house, you know, uh, get a dog named Spot, you know what I'm saying, have 2.5 kids and two cars in the garage, so on and so forth. Right. I remember sharing with one of my coworkers, you know, it was a tough time and that, you know, we're probably going to go our separate ways. And the first thing out of his mouth was, so you're just going to leave your kid? Why is the natural assumption that I would just, that if we're not together, and this was a white male, um, why was the nat, his, and we got, I got into it with him. Why is the natural assumption that I'm not going to be with my kid? Why is the natural assumption that because me and her are not together, that I'm not going to be involved in my kid's life. Where does that come from? It comes from the same place from where I sit. It comes from the same place of the welfare argument you had, right? That I want to believe these things about these people. Um, and this is going to sting a little bit. So, you know, everybody uh, 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 get comfortable in the seat you're in, right? I want to believe these things about these people because it makes me feel better about me. I can feel better than somebody else. You know, a couple of things, a couple of things as you know, as I'm, I'm feeling your pain as you, as you, as you're sharing this, right? Because the first thing I wanted to, to touch on was the therapist, right? And you sharing your experience of growing up in a two parent household and the therapist going, no, 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 David, let's listen to, to your wife. What's going on there, I'm, and this is just, you know, my two cents, potentially, because I don't know what was going through the therapist's mind, I wasn't there, but I know that in life in general, squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So it's like, okay, David, you don't have the pain body, like you grew up with, you grew up with two parents, your parents are good, you know what I'm saying? Let's address why she's a mess. But I, do, but I do have the pain though, dude, because right. if I'm constantly hearing over and over again, black men ain't shit. They never stick around. Black men ain't shit. They always disappear. Black men ain't shit. If you constantly hear that over and over and over and over and over again, that shit sticks with you. Oh, uh, dude, I, absolutely. You know, like I live it, I hear it, and I, de I debunk it. You know what I'm saying? Think, think about the entire purpose of this podcast, man. Like we are living embodiments of the fact that that's bullshit. But I'm not doing this. I'm not being a good dad to prove something to somebody. So, and, and, and dad, because it's in your nature and it's what you were shown to do. So, 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 so remind me to circle back about that when I get to why I'm mad. Right. But right. yeah, I'm not doing this to try to prove to somebody that black men are good. I'm not no, doing no, no, no. I'm, I'm, that I'm, I'm not like the stereotype. Right. And, and going back to the idea of the stereotype, right. And, and your coworker, like the, the second the second point yeah there's a lot of people who choose to believe things because it makes them feel better there's also a lot of people who believe shit because that's all they ever been told told or shown because they don't have exposure you know and you know you and i talk about like social media and and, and stuff a lot and like the fact that i'm not on facebook like i'm not on facebook because i got tired of being the black voice of reason because i realized that you know especially where i live and the industry i'm in i'm the one black person that a lot of people i know hang out with or they have like direct exposure to and so you know especially with the difficulty and and and, and butting of heads that we've had in this country 
know, over the past handful of years and me trying to share perspective and going like, wow, like there's certain stuff that I take for granted that like people should just know. And then I have to stop and realize like, yo, a lot of my friends, this just isn't their reality because they've just never been exposed to it. They just don't know. And I think the true testament of a friend is somebody who goes, wow, you just gave me new perspective. I got to go rest with this. I got to think about it. Versus somebody who goes, oh, this is just the way it is. And, you know, that's the way I was told it was. So it, it just got to be that way. You know, and I think, that's the, I think that's the struggle for humanity as a whole, not just, you know, from, from you know, the topics we're talking about in terms of the intersection between race and fatherhood. I think, you know, just overall, that, that, that's, you know, at the core of it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, just from, from the, you know, the couple of, of paradigms you just shared, you know, and just sitting and listening to people talk about black fathers, you know, it's a real stereotype, you know, it's out there. It's a, it's a bit of information that is out there, you know, doesn't necessarily seem to be supported by, by, by the data, but it's a story that continues to be told. And, you know, to your point, you're not being a great dad because you're going to, you're saying to yourself, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to show the world that a black man can be a great dad. You're being a great dad because you have an awesome kid and you want to do what's right for that kid. You just happen to be a dude who's black doing it. So I'm going to say something else that stings, right? Um, because Speak I want to be- Speak your truth, man. Speak your truth. Because I want to be clear about what I mean when I say people perpetuate this stereotype because it allows them to feel good about them. When I say that, this is, I'm not just saying that about white America. I'm not just saying that about, you know, um, Hispanic. I'm not just saying that about white America. Let me start there. I'm not just saying that about people um, race. Um, but I'm also saying that about black women. Right. To continue to perpetuate that stereotype. Dude, you know, I know I'm going to alienate a bunch of people when I say this, right? Yeah, we gonna continue, lose a bunch of I'm going to lose a bunch, yeah. But to continue to perpetuate that stereotype, you know, and it may be your truth that the dude you had a baby with bounced. But I'm sorry, you know, a bunch of those signals jump up before you even get pregnant. Right. And to have, to continue to perpetuate that stereotype allows you to feel good about you and feel better than them. And I'm not here for that. Whoa. I'm not looking to feel better than somebody else. I don't need, so, so famous tennis player, and I wish I could remember his name. It might've been Agassiz or it might've been somebody else, said that when he's on the tennis court, um, and he used to, um, uh, uh, coach Serena Williams, right? Or he used to speak to Serena Williams. He said when he's on the tennis court, he's not trying to be better than the person that's on the opposite side of the tennis court. He's trying to be better than he was the last time he hit that ball. The last backhand he did, he's going to do this backhand better than that one. The last forward hand, I don't even know what I'm talking about when I say the tennis, but I read <laughs> this 10, 15 years ago, and this has stuck with me for so long. I'm not out here competing with anybody. I'm competing against me. So I'm going to run to one side of the court just that much faster and get there and set up for the next swing. I'm going to get back to the center of the court faster than I did the last time and set up for the next swing. I'm trying to be better than I was yesterday. I'm not trying to compete with somebody or be better than somebody. I don't need and again, I'm not perfect at this. I don't think I am. I'm doing this. You know, somebody else may have a different opinion about me, but I don't need to be better than you in order to feel good about me. 
I think that this perpetuation of this stereotype is an extension of Jim Crow. It's a way, Jim Crow was all about, if you give these people over here something like separate water fountains that they can sit at a counter and eat here, but these other people can't eat here, then they will feel good about themselves and they will feel better than those other people. And then they won't pay no attention to the fact that I'm stealing, taking, raping, and pillaging everything else from them because they have an enemy. We have a common enemy, the person that you feel better than. You know, well, and I think this is an extension of Jim Crow. Well, I, I'll, say, I'll say this, and it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that it goes even deeper than a racial issue. That's humanity. At its core, you know, a lot of people exist in that way. It is a comparison to other people. Think about why social media is as prevalent as it is. Of course, people are going to perpetuate things that make them feel better about themselves. You know, as humans, we tell lies to ourselves all the time to make ourselves feel better. So whatever it is that's eating away at us on the inside, we tell ourselves little lies or we believe half-truths to make ourselves feel better. And if those half-truths happen to be about other people, most of us don't give a damn, you know? All right, so to, to, just to close out this report here, right? Um, there were a couple of, um, I'm assuming they're sociologists or people who have um, uh, made these quick statements about um, this particular subject. So Whitney Young, historically in the matriarchal Negro society, mothers made sure that if one of their children had a chance for higher education, the daughter was the one to pursue it. Thomas Pettigrew, the Negro wife in this situation can easily become disgusted with her financial dependent husband and her rejection of him further alienates the male from family life. Embittered by their experiences with men, many Negro mothers often act to, perpetu to perpetuate the mother-centered pattern by taking a greater interest in their daughters than their sons. Denton Brooks, in a matriarchal structure, the women are transmitting the culture. Duncan M. McIntyre, the Negro illegitimacy rate always has been high, about eight times the white rate in 1940 and somewhat higher today, even though the white illegitimacy rate is also climbing. The Negro, it kills me that they were still using Negroes in 1960-something, but okay. The Negro statistics are systematic of some old socioeconomic problems, not um, the least of which are underemployment among Negro men and, and compensating higher labor force propensity among Negro women. Both operate to enlarge the mother's role, undercutting the status of the male and making many Negro families essentially, what's the word again? Matriarchal. Matriarchal. The Negro man's uncertain employment prospects, matriarchy, and the high cost of divorces combine to encourage desertion. The poor man's divorce increases the number of couples not married and thereby also increases the Negro illegitimacy rate. Um, yeah, I, the, the, as, as we're reading through this, right, you know, Number one, this is dated information. Yes, yes. And it's going to be clear about that. 1965. Yes. Right. And it's written from a very dated perspective. That, yes. That's, right. So even look at the term illegitimacy, which goes back to you know that 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 that, that point about data. Illegitimacy just means they are not married. And it's, it's, it's such a derogatory term. Word. Yeah. The word illegitimate. illegitimate. You're right. an illegitimate child. 
you don't count. You don't right? count, right? You're you're bad before you even you even get come out the box. Right. And 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 even in the way they they shape the perspective of a matriarchal family. You know what? Even if that there's a lot of situations that I've watched where the dad is in the house and the mom still runs the show. Don't matter. So to say that, you know, like the terminology of matriarchal, like they, they make it seem like a four-letter word when there's a lot more letters in it than that, you know? So I, it, it's, you know, not that we're going to solve anything today. Correct. But I think, like, yo, know, I think it's something that needs to be aired out. Um, I think it's something that needs to be shared. And um, I think it just hopefully gave people perspective and some things to think about. Hopefully, hopefully. All right, so let's move on, right? Because we've been at this for a little bit while. I've been ranting for a little bit while, for a little while, right? Listen, um, get it out. This, this, this is the forum. This is the place to do it. Um, but uh, we need to get on um, to our uh, take out the trash, pat on the back, or uh, uh, tell us why you're mad. Do you have uh, anybody you want to take out the trash on? You know what? This week, I don't think I have anybody that I want to drag. You know, <laughs> you know I, I, was, I was thinking about it. I'm like, nah, I, I have somebody I want to pat on the back, though. So, I'll, But I'll wait. I'll wait. Um, I don't have anybody to take out the trash. But uh, go ahead. You want to pat somebody on the back? Yeah. So as, as we're talking about you know, people doing a great job of parenting, you know, and I want to have this dude on the show at some point. I know I'm front running. Yeah, I'm, I think I mentioned him to you, but my boy, Mike. And Mike is a single dad to two, uh, to two boys. His wife passed away. Gosh, it got to be like almost 15 years ago now. And left him with his sons who were six and three at the time. Um, yeah, no, 13 years ago now. So his boys were six and three at the time, and it's been him doing the thing on his own. You know, he's had a little, he's had support of his family, like, you know, they're in the area. But, you know, as long as I know Mikey, and that was shortly after his wife passed away, it's just been him and the boys. And, um, you know, I watched this dude sacrifice an awful lot. I watched him go through a lot of changes and a lot of struggles. And, you know, he always does it with a smile on his face. He's a dude who wears his emotions on his sleeve, but he has a heart of gold and, you know, Mikey, big ups to you. Pat on the back for, for doing the damn thing, bro. So um, there's one person I think that both of us um, wanted to uh, pat on the back. Um, and I'm looking for his account now, right? Um, but you mentioned him uh, to me earlier. and Because um, oh, I don't know. Well, they use, his, they use his government name in the article that talks about him. Um, and I can't remember his Instagram account. Uh, was it Dad to Three Boys? Three Boys, One Goal. Three boys, one goal was his Dante name. Dante Palmer is his name. Yes. Yes. So yeah. go ahead. Share Dante's story, man. Because I think it's amazing. Yeah. So um, if you go to his Instagram, it's three boys underscore one goal. Right. And I've been following this guy for a little while. Right. Um, and uh, I don't know if he started this back when Colin Kaepernick um, was kneeling, if that's where he came up with the idea. Um, but he has been adamant about the fact that when you go into uh, the bathroom or the male's bathroom, there's never a changing tape or very rarely is there a changing tape. Right. And he has been posting over and over and over again, him squatting down while changing one of his kids' diapers, right? And um, I have done that on so many occasions. It ain't funny, right? Um, and then recently, right. I believe, um, he entered into a deal with Pampers, right? Right. Um, where they are now going to fund, um, yeah. So the it's up on, yeah, the installation of changing tables in um, a whole bunch of restrooms, right? Males' restrooms, right? 
Um, and this just goes to show it's called Squat for Change, www.squatforchange.com slash donate or hashtag Squat for Change at Pampers, love the change. Um, and he's officially a partner of Pampers um, US and uh, they are funding or providing or doing something with him um, in order to get uh, installed into a whole bunch of male bathrooms, um, a table, a changing table. You know, the one that flips down from the wall. Right. Yeah. Like, what, what, gosh, what was it? The one with the little koala bear on it. I forgot what they're called. But like, yeah, I, I think it's supposed to be like 5,000 installations by the end of what, 2022 or something like that, or 2021. Like, so in the next handful of years, the Pampers is paying for 5,000 installations nationwide, which is insane. Because like, I look back at, you know, my kids being a bit older, like it was almost unheard of for there to be like changing tables in the men's room. So like if I went somewhere with my kids by myself, it was me bringing them out to the car to try and change them or, you know, trying to juggle in the, in the men's room in the same way that, that this guy was, you know, with your kid on your lap or on the sink or what have you, you know? Yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I think it's a great thing that, you know, that, that, you know, his hashtag and his efforts has, has called, you know, most active dad's plight <laughs> to the forefront. So big up to Pampers, too, for supporting. Home run. Home run. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so do you have any reason or you want to talk about why you're mad? You get mad at all this week? or no, You know what? Like I said, uh, other than, like, you know, just juggling and, and you know, the, the stress of, of this planning stuff. Yeah, I, I've said to people jokingly over the past couple of weeks, if you find out that I am in a relationship again or I'm engaged, or I'm married, it's because I have tapped out on all the organizational stuff that I am tired of thinking about and somebody's willing to do it for me. <laughs> you know? But other than that, yeah, you know, I'm not really mad. I'm good this week. I think I'm good. How about you? Uh, okay, yeah. Um... You know, I got two things that I want to talk about, right? Go for it, man. So, you know, I'm in court, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm going through the custody thing um, with my son's mom, right? And right. I think I talked to you about what I'm after, right? Um, I'm after the fact, or I'm after a schedule that names me as the custodial parent and that my son is with me um, for bedtime any night where he needs to be in school or daycare the next day. Um, that's what I asked the court for, Right. So we had final arguments, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then the order came out um, last week. I got a copy of it um, from my son's mom, um, but I was down in the court building yesterday and they told me that it just uh, sent out last week, uh, Friday. So, um, you know, I got it in the mail yesterday, right? And, and, and the first thing is that during the final argument, right? Um, which relates back to what one of the things we were just talking about, right? Um, and, and I need to be clear about this, right? Or we should be clear about this. You know, we record these episodes uh, well in advance of when they actually air, right? So right. today's date is what? July, I'm sorry, June, June 29th. June 29th, right? So you're probably not going to hear this until July 29th, right? But this is when this is going on, right? Um, so during... Um, and I represented myself, uh, my son's mom, she had a lawyer, right? His final argument was basically that um, I'm angry, that I am an angry person, that I'm angry at society, and I'm angry at the system because 
of this perpetuated thing that um, black men are deserters and that the reason I'm here or the only reason I'm here and the only reason I'm looking, and he said this in court, the only reason I'm looking for this is because um, I'm looking to get a piece of paper that says that I am not like all the other black men that are out there. He said that. Whoa, wait, what? He said it. He said it. He said it. He said you are looking for documentation for that the shows that you. I am not like all the deserter Negroes. Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. So um, I asked them, meaning uh, my son's mom and their lawyer, to tell me what schedule that they were looking for, because it was never really clear. In right. the beginning, they filed a petition that said that they wanted one thing. Halfway through the middle, they said they wanted something else. Halfway through, um, at the end, during final argument, I don't know if it was the same as what they said in the middle or not, right? But at the end of the day, she said um, that she wanted a schedule where my son was with me on Sunday, he was with her on Monday, he's with me on Tuesday and Wednesday, we alternate Thursdays, he's with her on Friday, and he's with her on Saturday, right? And they said something like this toward the middle of the trial when we were arguing. And the judge says, so Mr. Crockett, you understand what they're looking for now? And I said, yeah. He said, what do you think about that? I said, I think it's shit. Where's the stability in that? Where's the structure in that? We already disagree at what time my son should be at school or daycare and at what time my son should be in the bed at night and, how, and what his eating and feeding patterns are. So if we don't agree, what structural stability is in that if he's with me one night and then he's with her and then he's with me and then he's with her? And the judge said, yeah, I agree. Right. The order that came out was exactly that fucking schedule. Exactly the schedule that she, that she and her lawyer put out? Yes, that's the, order he, that's the order he issued. Now, if you agree that that schedule is fucking nonsense, why would you issue an order that says that? Okay, I got my own feelings, why? Because right. he didn't like me. Because I'm in there telling him that I think that this thing is... Uh, that there's gender bias and there's race bias and that I do not believe that there's any chance that this thing is going to work uh, in my favor, no matter how much evidence I put up against you um, or put up against her, no matter what my argument is, that there's no way in the world, unless the mom does not show or unless the mom has a drug or alcohol problem or is physically violent to the child, there's no way in the world they're going to award a custody of a child to a black man absent those three things I just mentioned. It's just not gonna happen. No matter what you show them, no matter you show them that you got him in daycare early, that you're paying all the bills, that you pick him up on time, that he's in bed on time, that you're bathing him regular and all that other sort of stuff makes no difference. They're just not going to do that. But if the shoe were on the other foot and it was a black man who was not picking up or dropping off on time for daycare, who was not putting his kid to bed at regular hours or the hours were all over the place, who was not um, um, contributing fairly, or what, and let me just say, you know, in fairness, what I believe to be fair financially, you know, they'd have no problem awarding custody to the mom. No problem. That's my opinion, but that's what I'm mad at. I'm mad that this judge had the nerve to issue a schedule that is exactly what he said was not good and was not in the best benefit of minds. So what's the next step? I'm filing an appeal. Okay. Yeah. And dude, it, it's interesting, you know, we, we talk about like narratives and perspective and so forth, but 
people are going to do things that stick to their narrative and stick to their perspective. So if this judge has that perspective where, you know, you know, these dads, black dads don't do what they're supposed to and black moms are, are better suited or moms in general are better suited because, you know, I have white friends who go through the same shit in, in, in the court system where, you know, they're active dads and, you know, they're committed dads, but mom always gets the upper hand. I mean, it, and people tend to, to rock with their narrative. They, you know, it's very difficult to say what I, whatever my preconceived notion was, it may be wrong in this case. We, as humans, even if you are a judge, it's very difficult for us to do that. Um, but yeah, man, it, it sucks that it didn't shake out the way that you expected it to, you know, or, or in, in, in as hard as you fought for it. At the end of the day, my kid is going to be all right. I'm going to be there. I'm going to take care of my kid. However it is, I have to. That's but, it. Um, yeah, yeah. That's it. You know, I mean, like, it, it's, you know, whatever the shakeout of, of, of the legal system is, it's like, you know, your kid is still your kid. You still love them. You're still active with them. It, 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 it'll, it'll work out in the wash. Yeah. I'm playing the long game. Yeah. So what was the other thing that was on your mind? That's it. That's it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You know, dude, it, it's frustrating, you know, and you, you look at, like, a lot of stuff we, we talked about today. Uh, it's based on real life perspective, real situations, and, you know, things you're actually going through. And sometimes, especially when you got a podcast that gives you a platform, you got to let that out. So, you know, as the name says, with a single dad, why you mad podcast? sometimes we're going to be a little angry. So anything else you want to touch on today? No, nah, I'm good. I'm good. All right. Well, ladies, gentlemen, consenting adults, Thank you for listening in. We will see you in two weeks. But until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at single dad y w h y u y o u mad. Uh, visit our website singledadyumad.com, spelled exactly the same way. Subscribe, comment, rate us, and review us on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all the other podcast formats. And thank you. Thank you, thank you to the 600-plus subscribers we have so far and for those of you following us on IG. Yeah, um, I wanted to say something about that also. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, 600 subscribers for, you know, just two single dads who aren't personalities, um, who are uh, handling this and uh, funding this on our own. I think that's pretty incredible. Dude, you know, that's a lot more friends than we actually have in real life. So. It's way more friends than I have. I don't know what you... <laughs> That ain't my friends and family. Thanks. All right. right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, everybody. All right. Bye-bye. We know that more than half of all black children live in single-parent households. Half. A number that's doubled since we were children. We know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime. They're nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They're more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teen parents because the father wasn't in the home. The foundations of our community and our country are weaker because of this.